Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 42, Irene of Athens. Hello everyone and welcome back to the history of modern Greece. It has been a while since we last recorded an episode. What may seem like two weeks for everyone listening at home has been well over a year for us. When we left our narrative, Irene of Athens was the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. The year was 800 AD, and the region was experiencing one of the coldest climates in recorded history. This was a crowning achievement for the Roman Empire, or Byzantine Empire as some scholars call it. A woman was ruling over the entire empire, and not as a regent or the wife of the emperor. Irene had managed to work her way to the highest office the world had ever known. Now I think it's good to visualize this accomplishment as Cersei Lannister finally sitting up on the Iron Throne. This woman had to fight tooth and nail against adversaries on all sides to get and maintain the position of Empress of the Roman Empire. Without a doubt, Irene of Athens is a champion for women all over the world, and perhaps Having so many enemies on all fronts made her paranoid, for she made several mistakes that could have otherwise solidified her position. Just to recap, the Byzantine Empire had just recovered from a century-long losing streak, a whole hundred years. The Arabs came out of the desert fast and robust and captured the entire Persian Empire and half of the Byzantine Empire. After finally defeating the Arabs in the siege of 717 CE, the Byzantines had a moment of rest where they were able to self-reflect on themselves and figure out why their god had abandoned them. For over a thousand years, the Roman Empire had stood strong against all her enemies. The one true faith had united the people of the empire. But now things were different. They weren't the dominant power. A new power was rising from the south, and they had their own god. Something was terribly wrong, and the people and church were determined to find out exactly what God was punishing them for. It was determined that the crime the Romans had committed was that of idolatry. The Romans had grown too accustomed to their icons of Christ and his saints. That was definitely the reason the Arabs were conquering them, and God had abandoned their people. It definitely didn't have anything to do with overtaxation, the depleted coffers, endless wars against the Persians, or the plague. This was definitely the fault of the wooden statues of Jesus. While the entire city went on a witch hunt for statues of Jesus Christ, big and small, there were many people who did not believe this was the reason the Arabs conquered their land. Many people wanted to hold on to their statues of Jesus as they gave them their own personal comfort. How many Christians today have a picture of Jesus in their home? Would they be happy if a bishop came barging into their home, ripped the picture right off their wall, and burnt it in a fire in the middle of the street? I don't think they would like that. 
One thing that made Empress Irene popular and unpopular during this period was her love of the icons. She did not want to continue looting and burning religious icons. She wanted to preserve them. This made her many enemies as well as allies in the struggle. When we first heard about Empress Irene, we were very critical. There was something about blinding your own son with a red-hot iron poker and letting him die of his wounds that really turned us off of this woman. But we don't know the full story. For all we know, her son was a little bastard who could have ruined the entire empire. There is one documentary out there that we will link in our episode description. talks about the terrible job Constantine VI was doing and how he was not just a bad emperor, but also terribly cruel and negligent and would eventually destroy the entire empire. This documentary speaks about Irene of Athens looking out for the betterment of the empire by taking out her own incompetent son to save the empire from collapse. By medieval standards, the punishment for treason was being terribly tortured until eventually dying, and the punishment of blinding was considered a lenient punishment back in those days. To be honest, though, it still bothers us. But after thinking about it for a year, we both realized she actually did a lot of good. Her fight to protect the icons was one we really stand by. She protected the icons because she thought that God was literally inside of the painting. At least that's how it sounds. But that's not why we agree with her. For us, it's about preserving the artwork and relics from antiquity. There is nothing worse than desecrating ancient relics. I think of the Taliban in Afghanistan blowing up all those statues of Buddha that were thousands of years old. Then those ISIS soldiers broke into the museum in Iraq and smashed all those Assyrian and Babylonian sculptures to pieces. The feeling we get when we see that happen must have been similar to what the Byzantines were feeling when the iconoclasts ran through the streets smashing statues and burning paintings. It's disgusting and a crime against humanity. The murder is bad too, but this was deeper. Overall, our opinion of Empress Irene has drastically improved since we wrote the last episode about her. Sure, she made a lot of mistakes, like calling off the marriage between her son and Charlemagne's daughter, that could have easily strengthened her grasp over the shrinking Roman Byzantine Empire. But she cancelled it. Of course, the biggest mistake she made was horribly blinding and murdering her son. We can't stress how bad of a decision that was. First of all, she was already hated by the iconoclasts, which were half of the empire. But she was also hated by the church, who did not trust her because she was a woman. Especially because she was a woman who clung to power the way she did. But also, just from a decency point of view, suppose you were ever on the fence about liking someone. Do you think that murdering their own son by sticking red-hot iron pokers into both his eyeballs and letting him die slowly over days and weeks, screaming alone in a tower, is going to sway people for or against that person. Well, she quickly realized her mistake, because now her only claim to the throne was gone. She murdered her successor. There was no way of getting out of this. Sooner or later, her time was going to run out. Her enemies outside of the Empire, specifically the Caliphate, were watching her, waiting for their moment to attack. 
So she decided instead of waiting for them to attack, she would just increase the annual tribute and keep them off her back. Her enemies within the Empire were also looking for the right moment to attack. So she did what anyone would do in that situation and lowered the taxes of the rich, basically draining what little money was left in the treasury. And this only sped up her demise. For a short period of time, Empress Irene was on top of the world. But even she must have seen the writing on the wall. The walls were closing in. Her allies were ready to pick the meat off her dead corpse. I imagine she didn't sleep well and must have been very stressed out all the time. Every time she drank wine or ate the food, she probably wondered if it was poisoned. Our resources for Irene are all written by religious zealots who didn't trust women and hated icons, so we have to assume her motives weren't always sinister. Irene did have two very loyal comrades in her reign as empress. They were the eunuchs Starachius and Aetius. You would think that two strong allies who couldn't have children of their own would make great accomplices in her bid to hold on to power, and they would have been if they were working together. But it just so happens that these two eunuchs hated each other's guts and were constantly working against each other. Just because they were eunuchs and couldn't have their own children did not mean they weren't a threat to Irene. These eunuchs came from noble families, and they could easily manipulate and work the system to put their closest relative in a position to seize the throne at the first chance they got. As soon as Irene lost her son, by loss I mean murdered, the eunuchs saw their opening. They worked tirelessly to get their family in a position to take over and saw each other as chief rivals. Wow, it never ends. Empress Irene made one final effort to solidify her position of power after a marriage proposal from a man in the West arrived at her capital. The marriage proposal was from the new emperor in the West, the first Western emperor in over 300 years, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, and he offered his hand in marriage. This was the lifeline Empress Irene had been praying for. Now, sending a letter back in the year 800 was a feat on its own, and there was no guarantee the messenger carrying the letter wouldn't get murdered on the way, or turn on the Empress and hand the marriage proposal over to her enemies. Now, even if the letter carrier was determined never to read the letter, you have to admit that after a few miles of trekking through the mountains of the Balkans, the mailman would be tempted to read the letter himself. And this is probably why she had no trouble spending all of the treasury keeping her enemies at bay, because she was simply buying the time needed for Charlemagne to receive her letter. However, the letter carrier broke down and he read the letter. And I can just imagine his face when he read that note. Dear Barbarian Cain from a foreign land, Yes, I would love to accept your hand in marriage and totally sell out my people to you. The letter carrier panicked and sent the note to the Byzantine nobles. And when they found out that Irene was about to sell out the entire Eastern Roman Empire to a barbarian in the West, they decided it was time to make their move. I say barbarian because despite being crowned by the Pope himself, 
Charlemagne was still considered a Germanic barbarian who was nothing more than a pretender. Now, it's funny because as we read this, I was just kind of thinking, you know, she could have really avoided all this trouble if she just chose an illiterate letter carrier. So, I guess that's one more mistake you could add to the list of Irene's mistakes. The year was 802 CE, and the elites in Constantinople were ready for change, specifically the end of Irene. It was a fun experiment. Everyone had gotten rich, but now it was getting dangerous. And the coup came from none other than the finance minister. The one who realized just how bad the treasury was, as, and it was completely empty. So Nikephorus organized a group of men, and they stormed the royal palace. No one got in their way. The guards loyal to Irene were not getting paid anymore, so they stepped aside. And a mob of men stormed the palace and captured Irene. It must have been a terrible yet relieving day for Irene. She was done. The jig was up. Maybe she feared blinding as retribution for the murder of her son, the emperor. Maybe she was relieved that finally she would get some sleep. I'm willing to bet she was terrified of torture and death. It was a dark period, after all. She was dragged out in chains and banished to the island of Lesbos in the Aegean Sea. We don't know the conditions of her life as a lesbian, but it couldn't have been that good, because she died a year later. They may have starved her or beat her, or maybe maybe just she just gave up and died. It definitely wasn't old age that took her, as she was only 50 years old when she kicked the bucket. But I imagine her year in exile was one of grief and shame and regret. All those close calls, the mistakes and betrayals, and let's not forget the whole murdering her son. It's very possible that she just fell into a deep depression and stopped eating until finally she succumbed to the world and died. Or maybe her guards forgot to feed her for a month. You never know, and we will never know. Regardless, Irene of Athens, the first female emperor of the Romans, died in 802 CE, and her finance minister Nicephorus became the next emperor of the Byzantines. Now, one thing we can say for sure about the reign of Empress Irene is that it was a time of peace. There were no military campaigns on either the western or eastern fronts of the empire. She even convinced the Arabs to evacuate from occupied territory. And she did this by giving them tons of money. But the results speak for themselves. No war. And one of her most popular legal precedents was the nullification of the widow's tax. Believe it or not, if you were the wife of a soldier and your husband was killed in battle, you would be required to pay extra taxes to make up for the lost revenue of your dead husband. This is kind of disgusting to say the least, and Irene abolished that law. Irene created soup kitchens to feed the poor citizens of Constantinople and built hostels and shelters for the homeless, and is also credited with the building of schools for poor children. She also set up government programs to take care of senior citizens. And all of this has contributed to us kind of changing our mind of Irene of Athens. What did you think of Irene of Athens? I'm starting to like her. Oh, good. Like, I'm not a real... I, I think she picked, uh, started up the first welfare state almost. 
true. And I don't normally think of welfare states as a good thing, but I think in that case it might have been better. In that case, yeah, when you're helping people and not I don't I don't know. I don't like the I didn't I didn't like that widow tax. I, I couldn't find that I couldn't believe they did that. Yeah, that's kinda of horrific. Punish the widow of the soldier who just fought for the empire by and making died, her pay. And died, paid the supreme price. Yeah. So I just want to know how your opinion of Irene has changed from a year ago to today. Quite a bit. I uh, This information in that last paragraph, I, I didn't really realize that. The soup kitchens, uh, helping widows and with the taxes. I mean, what a stupid tax. Taxing somebody because your husband's dead. He gave his life for the empire. But anyway, these little things sort of, it's kind of like the beginning of a welfare state. And... Uh, which parts I like, but I, of course, don't like all of it. No. Because well, it gets abused, and next you know, nobody wants to work anymore. And But um, the peace was a big deal. Big deal. Like, yeah, she said, like you said, no wars. That was really something. And we were talking about, well, she had to pay a lot of money for to pay it off, but then wars are expensive, too. All those soldiers had to be paid, and the transport, the food, and everything, so... And destroying people's land... Yeah, because you're not transporting food to the front line; you're taking it from farmers who live there. Yeah, and more and more widows. So, you know what? If you have to pay for peace, it's probably worth it. I don't know. Yeah, that's those are my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> in 802 CE, there was a new emperor, Nicephorus, in the east, and there was a new emperor in the west. Charlemagne. In 803 CE, Nicephorus had his 10-year-old son Starachios crowned as co-emperor. Because Nicephorus was Irene's old finance minister, he knew exactly how much money was in the treasury. None. The empire was broke. The first thing he did was raise taxes, and not just a little bit here and there, but a lot, and all across the board. This did not sit well with many people in the capital. They had just made away with tons of wealth under Irene, and now Nicephorus was going to try and take it all back by raising their taxes. We have all argued before about paying taxes and how no one likes doing it, but this situation was different. This revenue would have gone to the capital to pay for the city's expenses, like paying the military and feeding the people. Nothing will trigger a revolution quicker than a hungry peasant class and an underpaid military. The people who made the biggest deal were the clergy, as it was the religious artifacts and gold statues that were being confiscated and melted down to pay off the capital's debts. It just so happens that most of the historical documents from this period were written by literate members of the clergy, and they had a lot of negative things to say about the emperor. It just so happens that our main source for this era is Theophanes the Confessor, and he had nothing pleasant to say about Irene or Nicephorus. Nicephorus and Charlemagne tried to work out their land borders, as their two empires met in the Balkans near modern-day Albania and in southern Italy. In fact, a lot of territory Charlemagne conquered in Italy was taken directly from the Byzantine Empire. Charlemagne drafted up a new treaty and sent it to Constantinople for Nicephorus. And the entire treaty was based off of discussions and agreements held with Irene. According to Frankish sources, 
Emperor Nicephorus never agreed to the treaty, which was a sign of disrespect towards Charlemagne, and a new agreement was settled that saw Croatia, Venice, and Dalmatia remain part of the Byzantine Empire. Unfortunately for Nicephorus, another one of Irene's decisions came back to bite the empire. Because she volunteered to pay the caliphate an insane amount of tribute every year, money which the empire didn't have, by the way, they were forced to stop the payments. And this immediately triggered another war against the Arabs on the eastern borders. In 804 CE, Nicephorus marched an army out to Crassos in Phrygia in central Anatolia and engaged the Arabs in battle. In 805 CE, the caliph had trouble in another part of his empire, so he accepted tribute from Nicephorus in exchange for peace. With some time on his side, Nicephorus rebuilt his forces and repaired the destroyed walls of his strongholds. In 806 CE, the Byzantines went on the offensive, and at first they were very successful. Then Caliph Harun retaliated with a massive invasion which forced Nicephorus to come to terms. Meanwhile, the Venetians decided to shift their loyalty to the Franks, and it caused a naval conflict in the Adriatic. Between 807 and 808 CE, a temporary truce was made between Charlemagne's son Pepin, who was the king of Italy, but he quickly fell back on the agreement and invaded Dalmatia, sparking further tensions between the Byzantines and Franks. Nicephorus reneged on another peace deal with the caliphate, causing another uprising in the east. But due to further trouble in the east, the caliph signed a peace treaty so he could deal with his trouble. This treaty ended the tribute from Constantinople to caliphate, saving them a lot of money, but also saw the return of territory on the east frontier of Anatolia. The Bulgars, they had the Bulgars on the northern territory, the Arabs on the east, the Franks on the west... I'm sure they fought they, they had a lot each of other. Yeah. And uh, I guess the Arabs, they had to fight the... Is this before the Umayyads or the Abbasids? This yeah, is before. The... That came quite a bit later, yeah. Well, this is 802. I think the Abbasids came in 750. Really? Yeah. Oh, God. So they had... The Abbasids were fighting... The Abbasids were fighting the, the Umayyads and the steppe people and the Byzantines. I don't know. Everyone was fighting everyone on all sides. So it's not just like they have this unified Arab caliphate that have to fight. The Arab caliphate had all these enemies. And they were fighting the Chinese, too. Oh, God. In 809 CE, Caliph Harun died, which led to a succession crisis. Now, this freed Nicephorus from his war in the east and allowed him to focus on his adversaries in the north, the great Khan Krum, or Krum, of Bulgaria. The Bulgars were constantly raiding and harassing the Romans on their northern borders in lands that once belonged to the Byzantine Empire. And also, in 810 CE, Pepin died at the ripe old age of 29. His father Charlemagne, still alive, had to take his son's title as king of Italy. And then a new treaty was drafted and signed by both Charlemagne and Nicephorus. In 811, Nicephorus gathered several large armies and formed a super army, then marched north to invade Bulgaria. It was so large and so terrifying that one contemporary chronicler claimed that the Bulgars were unable to resist. Word made it to the Bulgarians 
that a great Roman army was marching north, and the report scared the crap out of the commanders, and they fled into the mountains. Krum asked the Byzantine emperor for peace, but Nicephorus didn't assemble the greatest army in centuries just to sign a peace treaty, so he pompously declined and continued his march to the capital of the Bulgars, the city of Pisca. Now, Krum didn't completely abandon his capital. He left 12,000 imperial guards to defend it. And Nicephorus and his great army arrived at the city limits, and they very quickly surrounded and then entered the city. Now, the Romans cut down every single one of the Bulgar defenders, killing all 12,000 palace guards and slaughtering many civilians. The chronicler wrote that the Byzantines took great spoils of treasure, but also Crum's large stores of wine, which he distributed to his troops, and then had the city sacked and burned to the ground. Word made it to Crum that Nicephorus was wiping out the Bulgarian people, slaughtering them and enslaving the survivors. Yet there was nothing Crum could do to protect his people. You know, we have a word for this today. It's called genocide. It kind of reminds me of Julius Caesar when he went up and wiped out the Gauls. Crum sent a messenger to the emperor Nicephorus and offered to surrender all of their wealth and treasure if they would just leave their land and stop slaughtering their people. But Nicephorus laughed at the suggestion. He had the largest army at his fingertips. He wasn't about to stop now. Nicephorus was going to wipe out every last trace of the Bulgars and repopulate the land with Byzantines, specifically the Christian refugees who were freed from the borderlands of the Caliphate. The Bulgars appeared to be defeated. At the very least, they were incapable of resisting the invaders, so the Byzantines began raiding the countryside. They plundered farms and burnt villages to the ground, and slaughtered innocent Bulgarians in the process. Fields that couldn't be harvested were burnt to the ground. Eventually, with no sign of the leader Crum, the campaign lost all resemblance of a military operation, and quickly devolved into a brutal raping and pillaging of foreign lands. The army lost any sign of cohesion, and some units ignored imperial commands. This was a coalition of many Roman armies that normally never fought together. Nicephorus was urged to call off the military campaign and head back to Constantinople before his army disintegrated entirely. But he ignored the advice and instead ordered the army to march on a city in the mountains that was once a trading city for the Byzantine Empire. You know, as we talk about this, I think about uh, Nazi Germany's plan in World War II where they were just going to go east and just wipe out every single person, the Slavs, and then just repopulate it with their own people? I mean, what's the difference between what the Roman Empire was doing to the Bulgars and what the Nazis were doing to the Slavs? It's, it's the same thing. March your army in there, kill everyone, burn everything to the ground, and then move your people in. Except this was the great Christian Empire. In the eyes of Nicephorus, the war was over. The Bulgarians were defeated, and their leader abandoned the country. Now it was up to the Byzantines to take back all of the countryside, one city at a time. But this wasn't the case. The Bulgarian resistance was assembling in the mountains, out of sight. As the Byzantine army started to collapse from the inside, 
with individual units fleeing in the night to continue raiding and pillaging, or just leaving the army because they didn't care anymore. The Bulgarian army was growing larger and larger as reinforcements from the neighboring tribes came to Krum's side. The Bulgarians knew they couldn't win a pitched battle, so they waited in the mountains while the Byzantines raided the countryside. Krum also ordered his spies to follow the Romans everywhere they traveled, so Krum knew exactly where they were at all times, and very quickly he learned the Byzantine army was passing through the narrow mountains. While the Byzantines entered the narrow mountain valley, Krum set a trap on the other side. Several fortifications were erected in the narrow valleys, funneling the Romans into a much wider valley. All the while, Bulgarian units circled around the Byzantine army. Nicephorus even saw the fortifications as he marched through the valley and several Bulgarian units watching them from the mountaintops. This looked like a trap, and it smelt like a trap. And that meant it probably was a trap. Nicephorus ordered the entire army to halt while they came up with a plan. Nicephorus' son Strachios was next to his father when they noticed the Bulgarians watching them from the mountaintops and suggested repeat and suggested retreating back the way they came while they still have the chance. This suggestion angered the emperor, and the commanders began arguing and fighting amongst themselves, and still Nicephorus refused to retreat. This standstill lasted for days, and the entire time Crum's men were moving in closer and closer. Spies mapped out the entire valley, and they reported the situation to the Bulgarian commander. The Roman coalition had completely broken down. They didn't even camp together. Jeez, oh my, I can't believe this. Each little unit was off in their own camp, and the Roman soldiers that didn't desert the main army resorted to drinking and playing games to pass the time. Still, the emperor fought with his officers about what to do next. Then it was too late. The Bulgars had completely encircled the valleys and had soldiers and cavalry guarding every pass in and out of the valley. By this time, Nicephorus realized the seriousness of the situation. But then the war cry came. The Bulgars chanted and banged their weapons against their shields, creating a terrifying sound in the valley. The order was given to organize the army, but the Romans were drunk and disorganized and never formed up in time. Two giant armies descended out of the mountains from different directions and attacked the camp of military officers. The Bulgars burst out of the forest, riding their horses, and slashed at the confused camp of military officers. Nicephorus was shouting orders to his men when the Bulgars cut him down, killing the Roman emperor and most of the command officers in the first minutes of the attack. Nicephorus' son stumbled out of the ambush and managed to flee on horseback, badly wounded. Estrachios was wounded, either cut by sword or spear or shot by an arrow. He desperately rode down the hill to escape the bloodbath. The emperor's son galloped through the forest and tried to regroup with the bulk of the Roman army. All the while, the Bulgar cavalry chased him down the hill, killing anyone who fell behind. The Bulgars were shouting and cheering as they descended upon the Roman army. 
The noise had alerted the Romans, and they struggled to put on their armor and form up for battle. And just as the Roman soldiers got into formation, the survivors from the command camp came riding over the hill. There were very few left, and most were wounded. The sight frightened the Roman soldiers as their commander and the son of the emperor came riding through the camp, wounded, bleeding. The main Bulgar force was right behind them, and instantly morale broke down and many Roman soldiers turned and ran. And the ones who remained to fight had no formal line to defend and were quickly overrun by the charging Bulgarians. Styracios galloped through the scattered Romans and fled for the river. The bulk of his army panicked and followed their commanders and tried to escape. Unfortunately for the Romans, Crum had two more armies waiting for them on the east and the west. And as the Romans fled south, the Bulgars closed in and slaughtered them as they retreated. Many soldiers were forced to cross the river before they were cut down by Bulgarian cavalry or shot by the archers. And with their heavy iron armor, there was no way to swim, and most of the men were swept away by the river and drowned. In the end, the great Roman army was defeated. The emperor was killed, and the son of Emperor Nicephorus was gravely wounded. The Bulgarian Khan found the body of the emperor, which was easy to locate as he was decorated with gold and purple, and performed an old step ritual. Crum cut the head off of the emperor and boiled his head in water until all of the skin and meat fell off. Then he cut the skull of Emperor Nicephorus and formed it into a drinking cup. It was a vulgar thing to do back then, but it was not unique to Bulgars, as Turkish and Scythian tribes were also known to make drinking cups out of their enemies' skulls. Styracios managed to return back to Constantinople, and after riding through the gates of the Roman capital, he was crowned the new emperor. Unfortunately, his wounds were pretty bad, and although he managed to keep himself from bleeding to death, he was unable to prevent infection, and his wounds began to fester. His days were spent with fever in a bed, screaming in agony as his infection spread throughout his body. After a couple of months, his brother-in-law seized the throne from him. Three months after the battle, Starachios died of gangrene. Michael, the brother-in-law of Starachios, became the next emperor of the Byzantines and was actually a survivor from that terrible battle that claimed the life of the last two emperors. Apparently, the dying wish of Starachios was to let his wife become the empress of the empire, but the patriarch was not about to let a repeat of Irene happen, so they supported Michael as emperor. Michael began a campaign of reconciliation and eased off taxes on the church and nobles and even gave a bonus to the military. His goal was to bring back balance to the empire and even prosecute the iconoclasts which made him popular with the church, especially Theophanes the Confessor, who was the chronicler of this time. In 812 CE, Michael reopened negotiations with the Franks and recognized Charlemagne as the emperor in the West. But he did not go as far as to recognize him as the emperor of all the Romans. And in exchange for this recognition, Venice was returned to the Byzantines. Now we're going to end this episode here. This was a good way to start the new season. 
wrapping up the story of Irene of Athens, the first empress of the Roman Empire, and the grim fate of the men who overthrew her. Not many emperors end up with their skulls being used as a drinking cup, but we assure you he will not be the last. In the next episode, we're going to fill you in on the current state of the Greek world, the geographic area they control, the state of their religion, and the organization of their military. But before we go, we just wanted to let you know that uh, we actually purchased two cups online that are replicas of the Emperor's Skull Cup. So if you ever want to see that, just check out our website. (laughs) So how do you feel after uh, our first recording session in about a year? There was a song um, made a long, long time ago by a, a cowboy named Gene Autry. Back in the saddle again, it reminds me of that song. <laughs> now, one, one thing I would say is our, our voices aren't holding out as much as I remember them doing. So, And we got to get back in shape. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>